Well, we are in week two of our Advent series, Christmas Foretold. And if you're not familiar with that term, Advent, it just means uh, the idea of coming, the idea of expectation of that coming. And as Christians, we anticipate at Christmas time the coming of Jesus. We're kind of in between two Advents, so we already have the first coming of Jesus as a baby, but one day he'll come as a king, amen? Amen. There we go. And uh, so we are kind of living in between two Advents, but we also, we kind of look back to this first Advent, this Christmas Advent that Jesus did come, that God became flesh, and we're going to talk about God became a baby. And I know we all have manger scenes, we're all comfortable with that, but it's a little crazy that he came as a baby like you came as a baby. And so we're going to talk about what that means. And, and last week we talked about where Jesus came, this little town of Bethlehem and this obscure place that God did big things. He brought the, the Savior of the world through Bethlehem. And Brad Hart, come on somebody, Brad Hart did an amazing job last Sunday. If you didn't uh, hear last Sunday's message, go on the podcast. He talked about where Jesus came and the significance of that and this foretelling of that that we see in the Old Testament and the fulfillment of that that we see in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at today how Jesus came. That he did come as a baby, but he also came as a king. And we're going to go back to the Old Testament as well. We're going to see this foretelling that Jesus would come as a child, but also as a king. You ready? Some of you aren't ready. I don't know. But even if you're not ready... We got some people who are ready. We're going to look at it together, and we're going to just jump right in. Isaiah 9. Janine just did a great job of reading it, so jump there with me. Isaiah 9. Grab a Bible, your Bible app, whatever you have. Uh, the middle of your Bible, Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9. And I know we're parachuting in here, so I want to give you some context. Isaiah 9 is about 600 to 700 years before Jesus. Right? And so Isaiah is a prophet, and he's foretelling the Jesus who would come, but he's not here yet. In fact, 600 to 700 years later, Jesus would come on the scene. And at this time, as Isaiah 9, the Jewish people are experiencing hardship. They were having an enemy come against them in uh, Assyria. If you know any history from your Bible or just history in general, Assyria was a dominant military force. They would often skin their enemies alive. That's who's coming against the Jewish people. We see that in Isaiah chapter 8. But they don't just have an enemy out there. They have an enemy in here, in their own flesh. And as Isaiah is speaking to these Jewish people, he's speaking to a people who have rebelled against God, gone their own way, and he's challenging them, encouraging them to come back to God. But he's not just challenging them as a prophet. He's not just encouraging them as a prophet. He's foretelling things that would come. That in the midst of their hardship, you got this enemy of Assyria, they are coming, that is real. you got this enemy in your own soul, that is real, you all know that, but there's hope coming in the midst of your hardship. And that hope he brings isn't through a principle, it's not through a, a policy, it's through a person, his name is Jesus Christ. And Isaiah lays that out, get this, 600 to 700 years before Jesus ever shows up in a manger as a baby. And so that's what Isaiah is doing. And I think if you look at verse 6, uh, if you're like me, you'll be a little bit confused. So let's be confused together, right? Look at verse 6 with me. It says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now, the reason I was confused when I read this, uh, and you might be confused if you really pay attention to the grammar there, this is in the present tense. Do you see that? Like, the child is born. 
a son is given. And you might wonder, like, Tim, 600 to 700 years before, like, does, does Isaiah just not know his, his uh, present future tense? Like, he just get those mixed up. And the answer is no, like he, he understands tense, he wrote a lot, he, he understands it probably better than you and I do. He's speaking in the present tense because he's so sure this son that's going to be given, this child that's going to be born, he's so sure it's going to happen. Right? This is this aspect of prophecy, this, this foretelling, this, this coming that Isaiah is participating in in Isaiah chapter 9. He's so sure it's going to happen, he says it like it's happening right now. It's like uh, in our culture today in in sports, uh, right now, my team, the Cowboys, are not doing so well. I know, shocker. Hold your applause, hold your laughs, all the things. Uh, They're not doing too well. And right now, you have a lot of false prophets, a lot of analysts, a lot of you, probably, who are coming out and saying, I knew they would be bad. I mean, Jerry Jones, what is he doing? The, The Cowboys, Jason Garrett. Dak Prescott, they don't know what they're doing. They're horrible. Like, I knew this would happen. And they're false prophets saying that because they're really just jumping on the bandwagon at this point and hating on really God's team, uh, America's team. And, uh, but there were some true prophets who predicted this. But, but Isaiah is a true prophet. Why? Because he doesn't just say things after. He says it 600 to 700 years before And he says it like it's going to happen. And we're going to see in Luke 1, it starts to take shape. We're going to see in the Gospels, it does happen. That that a child is born. That a son is given. That the government can sit on his shoulders because he's not just a child. He's also a king, amen? Powerful enough to have every government in the universe rest on his shoulders. He's that powerful. But he's also a baby. And Isaiah foretells that. It's called prophecy. And there's two prophecies that that Isaiah is probably known for. Isaiah 53, he prophesies Jesus' death. You know that one? He'll be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And he lays that out in Isaiah 53. And then here in Isaiah 9, we get this picture of Jesus' birth. And he says lots of things. He gives us names of Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Uh, a few years ago, we did a series. Our Advent series was that, just to hone in on those names. We're not going to do that today. We're going to look at two aspects of Jesus' prophecy that he says, hey, Jesus is going to come, bring hope in the midst of our hardship, and he's going to do so as a child, and he's going to do so as a king. Unto us, a child is born, a son is given, but also, verse 6, this government will be on his shoulders. Verse 7, also of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He says he's going to sit on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice, righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He's going to come as a child, but he will reign as a king. Isaiah lays that out. Now, fast forward 600 plus years to the New Testament, Luke 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we start to see this take shape. Luke 1, 31 through 33, it says this, behold, you will conceive in your womb. This is Mary, this is Mary receiving this word from an angel before the birth of Jesus. We hear something similar to what we hear in Isaiah. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, Mary, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Same language that we see in Isaiah. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, 
and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we, we start to see Isaiah's prophecy, his foretelling, take shape. And it takes shape, again, I know we have a lot of manger scenes, and some of you have these on your mantle or in your front yard, and we get comfortable with this, but it takes shape, this prophecy is fulfilled in the most unlikely of ways. An angel shows up to Mary, the best we can tell, a teenage girl who's not married yet, and says to her, hey, that child, that king that's going to sit on the throne of David, you're going to conceive him. He's going to start in your womb. And it starts to, the, the wonder of Advent, the wonder of the coming of Jesus starts to set in that we anticipated from the Old Testament times, from Isaiah, we start to see that, and it's an unlikely scenario of a teenage girl who's not yet married. So lots of questions we could ask. I just want to ask two. Why child? And then why king? Why, why did Jesus come as a child? Why, why did he come to a, a teenage girl? Why was he conceived in a womb like you and I were? But why also is he going to sit on the throne of David? Why also is the governments and all governments in the world going to sit on his shoulders? Why child and why king? Why was that prophesied? Why is that coming to fruition in the New Testament? So first, child. Uh, as I reflected and studied this week, Again, I know this, but it just came afresh to me this week. Why not warrior? Again, the context of Isaiah, just going back to the Old Testament, they have this enemy coming in Assyria who used to skin people alive. Assyria wanted to take down a nation, and they did it. We talked about this at the porch last week. Uh, young adults, we have the porch, and we capped off the semester. And, and I preached and talked about Psalm 46, and the backdrop of Psalm 46 is, is King Hezekiah being surrounded by all these thousands and thousands of Assyrian soldiers. And they're not just surrounding King Hezekiah and the people of Judah in that moment. They are taunting King Hezekiah. And they're saying to him, it's 2 Kings 18 and 19, they're saying to him, King Hezekiah, you can cry out to God all you want, but we're going to destroy you. I mean, we're Assyria. This is how we roll. This is what we do. We seek out a nation, we destroy it. Now, now, God has something to say about that, and through an angel of the Lord, it's really amazing, 2 Kings 18 and 19, go read it. He wipes out all the Assyrian soldiers. But they are a, a dominant military force. And, and honestly, that was unique. They take, they destroy. Isaiah, in his time, the Jewish people, they had that enemy coming against them. Now, in Isaiah 9, when he says, hey, there's going to be hope in the midst of your hardship. There, there's hope coming. Hey, where is it coming? A child is going to be born. A son is going to be given. Now, if I was a Jewish person in Isaiah 8 or 9, I would have said, hey, can we think about a warrior? Because <laughs> Assyria, I don't want to be skinned alive, and they're coming. Can we, can we get a warrior? If I was Mary in Luke 1... And it's this angel coming and saying, hey, you're going to conceive in your womb like an infant, a child. I would have said, hey, Rome is oppressing us. That's real in my life. Can I, can I get a warrior? And God says, no, it's going to be a baby. Right? I thought, why not a warrior? I thought, why not just a man? 
right? Okay, warrior, maybe that's not in God's plans, that's not in the cards, but what about just a man? Like, at the very beginning, again, the best we can tell, how did God create Adam? A full-blown man, right? And, and, and he creates, and, and Adam's there, and what does Adam start to do? He gets to work. So he starts to cultivate a garden, and, and just, we don't have to wait for him to grow up. No, he's, he's a man, and he starts to cultivate this garden. He starts to get to work. Why not, at least, okay, maybe not warrior, but why not at least man, I mean, why do we have to wait 30 years for the ministry of Jesus? Why didn't he show up as a man and just get right to work and start telling people about the love and the justice of God so people could get rescued and saved? Why not? So why a child? Why not a warrior? Why not a man? Lots of reasons. Two reasons I'm going to give you. One is Jesus had to be a child because he had to be our substitute. If you're taking notes, Jesus had to be a child. Why? Because he had to be our substitute. You see, if Jesus were not fully man, starting out like every man, every woman, fully being born like a, like a baby, like a child, if he weren't that, he could not stand in the place of sinful man and be our substitute. That's why it says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? He became the curse for us. How did he do that? Because you and I, sinful man and woman, he became fully man. He didn't show up just as a man, like because you didn't show up that way. He showed up like you showed up. He was born as a baby so that he could grow up to be a man, so he could be fully man, so he could be in your place, die on your behalf, be your, your substitute. Uh, Karl Barth, uh, the great Swiss theologian, he, he talked about this word, uh, huper. This word huper is in our New Testament Greek. It means in place of, on behalf of. And he said, Karl Barth said, hey, this is the greatest word in our New Testament Greek. Because this is the crux of our faith, amen? That Christ did redeem us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? He became the curse. He was fully man, but also fully God. He was fully God and his payment could be sufficient for our sin, but he was fully man and he could die in our place. So he was born just like you and just like me to be our substitute. But that's not the only reason. The other reason is he showed us as he was born as a child, as he became like us, he showed us, he put on massive display the empathy of God. Philippians 2, he made himself no, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant being born in the likeness of men so that Hebrews 4 could be true, he could empathize with our weaknesses. Now, you can't get more vulnerable and weak than a baby. Amen? All right, we have some babies in the room, right? And they're so cute. I just saw one outside in the lobby for the first time. I was just born a couple weeks ago. Got the little beanie on. So cute, right? Just sleeping. And now, they are so sweet now. Just parents just know they, they eventually, they're sinful. And so hang on to that beanie and the picture of them sleeping um, because eventually it goes different ways, right? And I know that because I'm a dad and I have three kids and they all started out as babies. Now, they, they all started out different as babies. They came into the world different. Our first child, our oldest, uh, my wife's water broke and she kind of took it easy. She took a shower. She got ready. Like she, she got ready for like the picture, you know, ladies. Uh, she got ready. She took a shower. It was relaxing. We drove to the hospital. She slept during part of her labor. All right, ladies, don't hate. All right, it was just her experience. 
Uh, don't hate on her for that. It was just relaxed, right? And, and that's the way our first child, this baby, came into the world. Our second child was the opposite of that. It was like a movie. I was uh, driving through stoplights 100 miles an hour trying to make it to the hospital. Because of the first child, my wife thought, and we thought, like, this is no big deal. Contractions, eh. Take your time. Relax. And then we had to call our person to come over and watch our oldest kid. She gets there, and by that time, the baby is coming, so it is like a movie. I'm driving at 100 miles an hour to the hospital. We wheel her into the hospital. It was like a movie. Did I say that already? <laughs> I think I have a little PTSD from it, but uh, <laughs> you can just picture the scene. I'm wheeling her in, and they're like, hey, sir, can you fill out this paperwork? And I'm just like, I don't think you understand what's happening here. And they, they, they start to realize, oh, she's about to have the baby now. They get her in the hospital bed. My wife's screaming out, where are the drugs? <laughs> right? And the nurses were getting kind of frustrated with us. And we got her up, and she, she had the baby right then, right? And, and that was our second child. Our third child, honestly, I don't really remember. Uh, <laughs> Because it's a little bit like the Jim Gaffigan bit, right? Have you heard that one? Like, it was kind of like we were drowning and someone handed us another child, right? <laughs> and so, but, but I remember all three of our kids' births, and they were all different, but they were all so special, right? And one thing I do remember about each one of them, somewhere relaxing, somewhere chaotic, is just holding that little baby, and, and the little baby screaming, and the doctor saying, hey, that's actually a good thing. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think it is. <laughs> Uh, and he's like, no, you want that. And just looking at the baby and, and putting the little beanie on and holding and putting the little Dallas Cowboys onesie on because <laughs> I want good things for my child. And, um, you know, I just remember all those sweet moments of just this little sweet uh, screaming child. Now, I, I just want you to picture God became flesh, but he became flesh like that. As a baby, I, I know you've seen some major scenes. I know you have some on your mantle, maybe a huge one in your yard. You're overzealous. You go over the top, right? And I know we get comfortable this Advent season, this coming. We're like, yeah, I'm so excited about putting the manger scene out. I'm so excited. Baby Jesus is coming. Happy birthday, Jesus. And we get so excited, and we're kind of comfortable with this truth. Don't get comfortable. God became flesh, and he did it as a baby, just like you, just like me, just like my three kids, just like the babies in this room. He was fully God, but fully man. Why? So he could die in your place. So he could be empathetic. He could be your substitute, and he could have empathy for you. He could experience the most vulnerable, weak parts of life. As a baby. So why not warrior? Why not man? God wanted to show you that, hey, this is your substitute completely, and this is your empathetic king. Now, he didn't just experience birth and, and be able to empathize with us. He experienced life. Uh, he did grow up. He was an instant man. He grew up to be a man. We see great stories about that, right? And Jesus is 12 years old. He's in the temple, and what happens? Joseph and Mary leave. And about halfway through the trip, they're like, hey, where's Jesus? And as parents, we all feel encouraged in that moment. 
Jesus was a kid. He grew up like 30 years old. He starts his, his public ministry, but he grew up, so he wasn't a man. He, he was a baby, so he experienced. He didn't just empathize in his birth. He experienced and can empathize in his life. Like Jesus, have you thought about this? Jesus stubbed his toe. Now, he doesn't say the th same things you say when you stub your toe, but he stubbed his toe. He, he felt the warmth of sun on his flesh, but he also felt the, the wet of rain on his flesh. And some of you never felt that until the last couple weeks because you grew up in Phoenix. <laughs> Jesus felt that. Jesus felt the, the joy of relationships. Right, one of his best friends, Lazarus, he, 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 he enjoyed relationships, but he also experienced the grief of loss. Lazarus dies. What does Jesus do? He weeps. Jesus experienced everything you and I experience in birth, but also in life. So he could not just be our substitute, but have empathy. And let me just tell you, there's not just power in Jesus being king. There's power in Jesus being an empathetic child who grows up to be a man. How do I know? When we first came to Phoenix, the goal, the, the idea was not to start Phoenix Bible Church. Five years ago, five and a half years ago, we were a part of a, a larger church. And I won't share the whole story now, but I will share more of it at starting point, so stay for that. Uh, but the brief snapshot of that, the Cliff Notes version, is we came here with a really large church to start one of their churches. A few months into that process, they had some problems. They had to shut our little church down. And three months into our time in Phoenix, my family, we moved here. My wife was pregnant with that third child. And I was let go from my job. The church had to shut down. And we were wondering, why? Like, why, well, God, why did you, we felt like you called us here. Like, what are you doing in the midst of this? And, and some of you know the story. There was one night uh, where it wasn't one of my best moments. I was on the ground in the fetal position. And I was asking God, why? Why? I was just kind of whining like a little baby. And my wife said, hey, hey, Tim, I know there's a lot at stake here. I know finances. I know insurance for the baby. <laughs> you know, just little things. Um, I know there's a lot at stake, but like if finances and stability weren't a factor, like what would you do? And I just stopped for a moment. And I was like, well, I think I would start a new church. I think I'd plant a church. And she said, well, let's do that. And that was really when Phoenix Bible Church, the whole idea came to be. And, and because we were going through all that, we had no relational equity when we came here. We came on a call of God. Everything got taken away that we did know. And because this kind of unprecedented, like a church closure just a few months in, starting a new church, a lot of people in Phoenix kind of became our family because we didn't have any family here. And pastors and people in our church that helped us start the church began to reach out and say, hey, we're praying for you. And listen, I was so thankful in those moments that people were, were praying for us. But you know what I was even more thankful for, for in that moment? Was the people who empathized with us. So you got lots of emails from pastors who were like, hey, we're praying for you. Like, let us know if you need anything. And we all know, like, that means something. Like, that's real. Like, that meant something. But there were some other people who sat down with me over coffee and said, hey, bro, like, that's hard. I just want to let you know. I know what that's like, and I'm with you, and I'm for you. And we're going to do this thing together. And there were some people, some people in this room who, who literally locked arms in empathy with us. And we started a church that five years later we saw 40 baptisms on our fifth anniversary. We celebrated that. Right? 
So sometimes we, we're going to get to the power in a second. King Jesus, there's power and empathy, Amen. Like, that's, that, that was the power that we held on to. That was a reflection of the empathy of Jesus, that God became flesh, and he did so in the most vulnerable, weak form as a baby. He grew up as a man to empathize with us, and there's power in looking at Jesus and him being able to say, Hebrews 4, I can empathize with you. That in whatever situation you're in, whatever hardship you're in, you don't have a far-off, distant God who doesn't have anything to do with your pain. He feels it. He looks across to you and says, hey, I'm with you. And we see that in the incarnation. We see that in this foretelling of how is Jesus going to come? Not as a warrior, but as a baby who grows up to be a man, who dies in your place, who rises again, who empathizes with you. That's the power in empathy. That's the power in the child that would come. But there is also power in this king. Uh, we see in Isaiah, we see in uh, Luke 1, that Jesus isn't just a baby, he's a king. Uh, twice we see he's gonna sit on the throne of David. Uh, now, I, I wanna give you a brief history lesson uh, of what that means. Throne of David, we see in the Gospels, city of David, that's Bethlehem. We see Jesus described as son of David. And maybe some of you know that language, but you're kind of like, well, hey, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? Just briefly, that was a messianic title. As Isaiah foretells, like Jesus is going to sit on the, the throne of David, that goes back to another prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 where God tells David, hey, hey, you're gonna have a kingdom, it's gonna be forever, and through your seed, through your lineage, that's going to happen. And fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, first gospel, Matthew chapter one, probably a chapter none of you have actually read, because it's a genealogy, a list of names. But in that genealogy, it's really powerful, we get this list of names that connects David to Jesus, through Joseph. And we start to see this, this importance of why is this phrase repeated, throne of David, because it's a messianic title showing, hey, Jesus is going to be king, and he's going to be king in the way that God promised David that, that his kingdom would be not just for a little while, but forever. And we see that in Isaiah. We see that in Luke 1. Now, what does that look like? It looks like primarily three ways. Jesus was king first in his life. In fact, on Palm Sunday, uh, the Sunday right before Easter, uh, many of you will remember this if you've been in a church on Palm Sunday. What do we celebrate? We celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem. How? On a donkey. People are waving palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna, save us. You're the savior of the world. You are the king. They say, Hosanna, son of David, because they're they're. they're acknowledging that messianic title, and they're, they're worshiping him as king, as Jesus lived. But it's not just as Jesus lived that he's this forever king. He's going to be king when he returns. Revelation 19, we see Jesus not show up as a baby, but in Revelation 19, he rides in on a white horse, tatted up with a sword, and he has fire coming out of his eyes. Slightly different picture than our manger scenes of Jesus, Right? We see Jesus king in his life. We see Jesus king as he returns. And literally, he will. When he returns, he will set up a kingdom, a literal kingdom. He will reign upon the earth. But we also see Jesus reigns right now. 
Jesus reigned through the book of Acts, through the church. Jesus continues to reign right now through you. And we get some principles, some guidelines for this in Jesus' life and ministry. He begins to lay out kingdom values. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The first thing he says, hey, I'm coming and the kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. What time? The time for the kingdom. Jesus ushers in the kingdom. That's the first thing he says in Mark chapter 1. 119 times in all of the gospels, he uses this word kingdom. And through his life, he reigns through his life, but he also sets up how, how we, he will reign through us, the church, after he's gone. And so we see things like greatness and blessing. We see these kingdom ethics and values that Jesus lays out of how he will reign through you and I, through the church. We, we see greatness that greatness won't be measured, not for kingdom citizens, not reflecting King Jesus. Greatness won't be measured by power, but through humility, through meekness, through serving. Hey, you want to be great, Jesus says? You be last, you serve. We see him define the kingdom ethic, the kingdom value of blessing. Right, blessings are a word that gets tossed around in church and in books at Barnes and Nobles all the time, typically on the bestseller list. And how do they talk about blessing? Health, wealth, prosperity. How does Jesus talk about blessing? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek. Well, that doesn't sell well at Barnes and Noble. Um, but Jesus preached the best sermon ever in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what he said. He, he defines the ethics, the values of this kingdom that's lived out through you and me, that, that blessing is not through health, wealth, and prosperity. No, it's through meekness. It's through mourning, Jesus says. It's through a hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he begins to define that in his life as he reigns so that as he reigns through you and I, we'll know the values, the, the ethics of this kingdom, the way to reflect this kingdom to the world. And Jesus reigns now through that as we show what true greatness is, as we show what blessing is, as we don't buy those books at Barnes and Noble and buy into that lie, but as we live out the truth of what true greatness and true blessing is as the church of Jesus Christ, and we reflect Jesus' loving and just reign, his kingship now, you and I, amen? This is what we get the opportunity to do. So Jesus rules in several ways. Those are a few. And here's the reality. Uh, oftentimes, during the Christmas season, instead of re reflecting King Jesus, we reflect the culture of Christmas. I, we look forward to the same things that everybody else looks forward to. We focus on the same things that everybody else is focusing on. And as we talk about Advent, the reason why we do an Advent series is because as Christians, we need to recenter on the coming of Christ, not just the coming of a, a cultural Christmas. Right? And so listen, I love Ben Crosby. <laughs> it's been playing in our house the last few days. We put up our lights yesterday. We were a little late in the game, right? I, I love the food at Christmas. I love the sights, the sounds, the smells. I love this year we did Elf on the Shelf. Right, don't send me emails about that. Like, you don't believe in that, whatever. We did, the first time we did it, we're doing it for fun with the kids. And so every morning they're like, where's the elf? We're like, you got to go find it. It's a challenge. And we're doing some of these Christmas traditions. And listen, 
I'm a pastor, but I'm also a person, and if I'm not careful, here's what I find myself looking forward to and focusing on. Not how I reflect King Jesus, not how he's been empathetic to me as a, as a child, as a man, how he died in my place, and Christmas is about the first coming of that Jesus. I find myself hoping in, reflecting on the culture of Christmas, not the king of Christmas. And I have to be reminded as I prepared this sermon, I have to be reminded, hey, what are we actually looking forward to? What are, listen, what are the rival kings in my life? Like, we have King Jesus, but man, I got some rival kings, and sometimes it is the sights and sounds and smells of Christmas. Sometimes I find myself talking more about that than talking about Jesus with my neighbor. That's problematic if you're a Christian, right? Because the Christmas season is about the coming of Christ, the empathetic child, the powerful king. And so we need to refocus, like, what are we reflecting? What are we celebrating? What are we focusing on? I, I'm not going to take Elf the Shelf and, and remove him from my home, right? I, I'm not saying, like, go burn your Christmas albums or your, delete your Spotify app, whatever you do now. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in, in, the, in the order, in the priority of your life, what is being celebrated most? What's being reflected on most? Uh, St. Augustine talked about it this way, that we often have disordered loves. And sometimes it's like bad things like uh, that go above God and our love for God. Sometimes it's bad things like lust. And we're like, wow. Ah, I, I lust and after pleasure or after someone of the opposite sex. I lust. Like more than I think about God, I think about that. And sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's like greed. And at Christmas times, we, we, we do things like we go out and buy more than we can afford. We, we do focus solely on receiving gifts instead of being generous. And sometimes like greed takes another notch above loving God. And sometimes it's those things. But sometimes it's good things like the hot cocoa and the music, and the cultural Christmas that you're like, well, Tim, that's not bad. But sometimes at Christmas season, disordered loves, that goes above Jesus, the empathetic child, the powerful king. And Christmas, Advent is a time to reorder our loves and make sure Jesus is at the top. Make sure there are no rival kings. So have you done that this Christmas? What do you find yourself reflecting on, focusing on? Do you need to reorder your loves? And make sure, hey, Jesus is reigning now. How is he doing it? It blows my mind too, but he's doing it through you and he's doing it through me. Are you reflecting that? Are you showing that? Which one, empathy of a child, Jesus coming as a child, power of a king, which one are you less comfortable with? We need to embrace, we need to reflect both. That needs to be at the top of our priority list, child and king. And, and I would bet some of you don't think about the child, but some of you, you, you do because we see that at Christmas all the time. Some of you don't think about the kingship of Jesus. And I think one of the reasons why we don't think about that, we don't think about that part, we don't reflect that part, dwell on that part, is because when we think of king, we think of distant, we think of judge, we think of someone we can't relate to. We, we think of that person who at the end of the day when we die is going to be looking over us and counting our sins, and we're kind of afraid of King Jesus. 
But I thought it was interesting this week, an author that I follow, he, he said this. He said, hey, my parents divorced when I was 12. He said, in fact, I haven't had a holiday gathering with both my parents and all my brothers present for 31 years. He said, I probably never will again. It's still incredibly painful every year, and I think I'll mourn that till the day I die. He said all that, and then he quoted Isaiah chapter 9. And he didn't just quote like, a baby's going to come. He quoted that a king is going to come, and that king will reign forever like on the throne of David. And all the governments can sit on his shoulders because he's so powerful. And he said, that's what gives me hope, is that one day King Jesus will return. And my broken family won't be broken anymore. And my relationships won't be full of sorrow anymore. That there will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more death. No more divorce. We need King Jesus just as much as we need empathetic child Jesus. Because he's powerful, he's loving, and he's with us in this Christmas season. And so, which one are you more comfortable with, the child or the king? You need to embrace both, reflect both. That needs to be our top priority. As much as the sights, the sounds, and the smells, we need to be embracing, reflecting king, Jesus, child, Jesus. He's both. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you that you sent Jesus the way you sent him, not as a warrior, not as a man, but as a baby. You sent him to be our substitute, to display empathy for us, so that even now we can come to you in the midst of our hardship. Israel was in the midst of hardship, Old Testament and New, and you brought hope through Jesus. You bring hope to us today in the midst of our hardship. And I know just as I shared that little snippet at the end about someone going through divorce, that a lot of people experience that at Christmas time. A lot of people have to split up and divide where they go for Christmas. A lot of people, as we just talked about in our last series, are, are experiencing and reminded of loss. And you bring hope through an empathetic child, but also a powerful king. And God, help us to embrace that as our, as our first love during this Christmas season, but also to reflect that, that now you give us the great privilege of being a part of your kingdom, that we reflect your kingdom values of blessing, of greatness, what true blessing and greatness is, and we get that opportunity at Christmas. And God, there's perhaps no better time where our world might listen to us as we reflect your kingdom values and as we reflect the empathetic child and the King Jesus. There's no better time to reflect that, to embrace that than this Christmas season. And so God, help us to do that. By the power of your spirit, help us to do that now, even as we sing. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.